Welcome to Nerd Heaven. I'm Adam David Collings, the author of Jewel of the Stars, and I am a nerd. This is episode 70 of the podcast. Today, we're taking a brief detour from our regular coverage of Stargate Universe and diving deep into Zack Snyder's Justice League. And this is going to be broken up into two episodes, because the movie is four hours long, and there's a lot to talk about. Even so, this is going to be a long one, so strap in. The description on IMDb reads, Determined to ensure Superman's ultimate sacrifice was not in vain, Bruce Wayne aligns forces with Diana Prince with plans to recruit a team of metahumans to protect the world from an approaching threat of catastrophic proportions. The screenplay was written by Chris Terrio, and the story was written by Zack Snyder, Chris Terrio, and Will Beale. It was directed by Zack Snyder, and it first released on the 18th of March 2021. In a lot of ways, the story of Justice League is the story of studio interference. And that interference began back in Batman vs Superman. The studio apparently wanted a shorter movie, probably so they could cram in more showings. Certainly that seemed to be their reasoning later on with Justice League. So they made Zack Snyder gut his movie and release a much inferior product. We all remember that before the movie was even released, Warner Brothers announced that there would be an extended cut coming out after the release of the theatrical cut. Now I enjoyed the theatrical cut, but the extended cut was far superior. The studio interference went into overdrive with Suicide Squad, resulting in David Ayer's soulful drama being turned into a comedy. The final cut being done by a trailer company. And they didn't let up on Justice League either. Zack Snyder has shared about the ongoing battle he was facing as he made the movie. After the tragic death of his daughter, he no longer had the will to keep fighting for his creative vision because honestly he had more important things to deal with. Family is always more important than work. And this of course led to Joss Whedon taking over and giving us the theatrical cut. You won't be hearing any hate or personal attacks on Whedon from me. He did the job that he was paid to do. And I'm just not into personal attacks. And there are one or two things in his cut that I liked. But I love the Snyder Cut orders of magnitude more. And I'm very glad we got to see it. Thanks to the generous hearted fans who started the Release the Snyder Cut movement which not only brought the films to our screens, but also raised a lot of money for suicide prevention. The first thing that we should talk about is the aspect ratio. The movie begins with a note that the film is intentionally shown in the 4x3 ratio. Now this is very unusual for a feature film in today's world. These days even TV is shot and aired in 2.93 to 1. Zack's feeling on this is that superheroes are tall, not wide and to make most of their heroic poses, you want to see them in a more square format. And this is how he framed the footage that he shot for Justice League. He intended that it would look best in IMAX theatres. When the theatrical cut came out, all of this footage was cropped to widescreen, making it look pretty awkward. I honestly thought this was going to be a real problem for me, but as the movie progressed, I found myself completely forgetting the aspect ratio and just getting sucked into the story and the visuals. The opening scene is visually spectacular. We see the climactic moment from the end of Batman vs Superman when Doomsday and Superman kill each other. 
rendered in incredible detail that is only highlighted by the extreme slow motion. The movie is freezing in on this iconic moment and making us live there. The death screen of a Kryptonian echoes across the earth. It wakes the mother box in Cyborg's house. As it echoes over the scout ship, we see Lex viewing the holographic message from Steppenwolf. It's not entirely clear back in BVS what caused this message. Why was Lex seeing Steppenwolf? How exactly was the bell rung? This sequence answers that question. Superman's dying cry activates the mother boxes and they reach out. But the timing is a little odd here. Steppenwolf has already received the message and responded by the time the scream reaches Metropolis. I guess he got the message from that first box in Cyborg's house, which is in Gotham. The second mother box to react is the Atlantean one, and Mira is there to see it. The cry continues to spread across the earth to Themyscira. There is something powerfully poetic about the dying scream of a Kryptonian travelling all across the world. I'm not sure how you scientifically explain it, but oddly enough, the power of that poetry is enough for me. It's cool how seriously the Amazons take the movement of the mother box. I think the Atlanteans had largely forgotten what it's all about. Mira is the only one there to see it, but the Amazons take this thing very seriously. I'd say they're afraid of it, but that gives the wrong impression. They take it very seriously. It's a healthy fear, not a crippling fear. So Junkie XL is credited by his real name, Thomas Holkenborg. I'm not sure why. I never really understood why he called himself Junkie XL. It turns out he's a DJ as well as a composer. Though I'll, I'll admit, even so, I just really don't get the idea of musician stage names. We get to live in the visuals of the icy landscape as Bruce travels to Arthur Curry's village. It's beautiful and it gives massive Lord of the Rings vibes. As I understand, that was completely deliberate. This opening credit sequence was fantastic, certainly more powerful than the mobile phone footage of Mustache Superman in the theatrical cut. Although I didn't mind that mournful contemporary song that played as we watched the world grieving Superman. And that brings us to part one. Don't count on it, Batman. This first chapter is all about Bruce trying to recruit people to help defend the world in the wake of Superman's death. It also needs to reintroduce Batman and Wonder Woman and establish the threat. The Flash and Cyborg will be introduced to us in the next part. But this is a traditional first act, which ends with the first plot point. Bruce knows enemies are coming. It's not entirely clear how he knows that, we'll come back to this. Bruce Wayne has come to a small village in Iceland to find Arthur Curry, who he has learned about from Diana's metahuman research and Amanda Waller's files. This scene was in the theatrical cut, and the concept behind it is largely the same, but it plays so differently. The theatrical version had a more comedic edge. This version feels dangerous. You'll hear me say that a lot, I think. The moment when Arthur holds Bruce up against the wall is a perfect example. In the previous version, they play it for a laugh. Let's embarrass the big tough guy by pointing out that he talks to fish. This time around, we actually fear for Bruce's safety. We know Arthur could do him some serious damage if he chose to.
I do like the moment when Bruce shows that he can speak their language. They thought they were having a private conversation in front of him, poking fun. You should never assume that someone can't speak your language. Bruce fails to convince Arthur to join his little band. All he really has are vague hints of a coming danger. That's not enough to tempt Arthur out of his privacy. He has no desire to be a world-famous hero and die at Bruce's side, like Superman did. As he zips off into the ocean, we hear the locals sing a song in Icelandic. This is a traditional Icelandic lullaby. Now, I'm not going to try to pronounce the name because I'll likely butcher it. I have no idea how to say it. Interestingly, this song was written by the great-grandmother of someone that Darkseid actor Ray Porter went to school with. Without understanding the lyrics, it's difficult to fully understand the significance of the song, and why Zack Snyder chose to include it. But the amount of time given shows us that it's meant to have a lot of meaning and significance. It's like it's inviting us to look deeper. As she sings, a woman holds Arthur's shirt and smells it. It shows how highly these people regard Aquaman, the love they have for him. He is important to them. He is a hero, but in a very small-scale way. He keeps this village alive and thriving. If he's going to risk his life fighting with Bruce in the wider world, he's going to need more convincing. As for the lyrics themselves, I suspect they lose something in the translation. The lyrics come from a poem written in the 1800s. The music was arranged in 1960. But the song speaks of a great love for a man and of betrayal and loss. Then we get a new introduction of Alfred. I love Jeremy Irons' Alfred in BVS, and I love him in this. His character didn't really work for me in the theatrical cut. Pretty much all of his scenes were replaced with newly written scenes. I don't know who wrote them, but I suspect it wasn't Chris Terrio. Alfred suggests that maybe Bruce isn't good at recruiting, and that makes sense. He doesn't have a lot of people skills. He is a recluse that lives in a cave. I mean, even in his business dealings, he probably delegates a lot. But the biggest problem is that he doesn't have enough concrete information to sell the vision. All he has is the vague sense that something bad is coming, but he can't tell anyone what it is. Next, we get our first scene with Lois Lane. Her daily coffee ritual at Superman's monument is powerful. I know the rain is a cliché, but here it works better than I've seen it work before. This is a more effective exploration of her grief in this one almost silent scene than the Lois and Martha scene at the Daily Planet in the theatrical cut. And now we come to the Wonder Woman terrorist scene. And again, it's the same stuff, but it is portrayed so, so differently. The theatrical version is all glossy, like it has a plastic coating on it. This version feels dangerous. It's not super dark or gritty, but it's dangerous. It feels exactly like this scene should. This is a terrorist plot. They're taking school children hostage. That's terrifying. The terrorist actually mentions, if we don't get what we want, you'll have a lot of dead kids on your hands. That one line exemplifies the difference in tone. And that's when we get the introduction of Wonder Woman. It doesn't use the iconic Wonder Woman theme, which I love, but the mournful female vocal actually fits much better. This is not the time for the heroic music. She hasn't done anything heroic yet. 
The feeling we're getting from this music is the question, can Wonder Woman stop them? Using her lasso, she is able to get the truth out of one of the terrorists. We have no demands. We're just stalling the police while we prepare to destroy four city blocks. Well, that's chilling. These guys want to wind back the clock to a more primitive time. There is nothing the police can do to convince them to call it off. They're planning to kill a whole lot of people. The way Wonder Woman bursts through the door is fantastic. And then, when she starts being awesome, that's when we get the Wonder Woman theme. Now it's earned. The Snyder Cut is a real education in filmmaking. It shows just how much you can take the same source material and present it in such a different way to tell such a different story. When the terrorist gets out the machine gun, obviously about to shoot the terrorists, we hear no music, just the screams of fear from the hostages. Those screams are so emotive, they make us believe the stakes of this scene. Wonder Woman is almost as fast as Superman and the Flash. But we see her in slow motion before we see her in real time being super fast. Now some say Zack overuses slow-mo in this film. But I like it. I find it very effectively used. I love the way Wonder Woman calms the kids. She shows her heart. She is a strong, tough warrior, but she is also very soft-hearted. After being comforted, one of those girls is inspired. She wants to be like Wonder Woman. This has led to some speculation among fans that she might actually be the character Wonder Girl, which is actually a name given to several different characters. I've heard from a number of female fans that they really appreciated this aspect of Wonder Woman. She's not just a woman acting like a man. She's strong and powerful and amazing, but she also demonstrates traits commonly associated with femininity. The stories allow her to be soft-hearted and to get excited at the sight of a baby. I know my wife really appreciated that. Cut back to Themyscira. Now we get introduced to the threat. This is what is coming. This is why Bruce needs to succeed in assembling the Justice League. Here's a question. Is this all a bit backwards? Should we have been introduced to the threat first, so Bruce has a solid reason to recruit? Maybe. Steppenwolf beams down to the Motherbox chamber. And he looks awesome! So much better than the theatrical version. That armour is seriously cool. Steppenwolf, in the previous version, didn't look at all impressive to me. He came across as some guy in a rubber mask with a silly hat. Although they did actually use CGI effects for him. I didn't find that character at all intimidating. But this version? Whoa! <laughs> this guy is intimidating. This guy has presence. This guy is alien. I love it. Steppenwolf mentions that there are always heroes to oppose him on each world he conquers, and they always fail. He accuses the Amazons of being fearful. And then Queen Hippolyta says something very interesting. Warriors of Themyscira, show him your fear. Again, this is reframing fear in a new way, in an almost biblical way. I like that. These women turn their fear into fierceness, and it makes them terrifying. So Steppenwolf has an axe. He's an alien invader come to Earth to conquer our planet, and he's armed with an axe. I'll admit that I really struggle with that, the silliness of it. It kind of works in the flashbacks, and it works in this scene, but it comes across a bit absurd later on in the movie. 
but it is a magic axe. It shoots fire or lightning, so I guess there's some form of advanced technology going on in there. But it still seems odd to me that an advanced species, one that has been spacefaring for thousands of years, would choose to arm themselves with a metal melee weapon. It just feels a little silly. I know you could maybe make an argument against lightsabers too, with this logic, but lightsabers are cool. The Amazons are armed with traditional weapons, like swords, but that's kind of different. These are an ancient order of warriors, they're not interstellar invaders. And apparently, Hippolyta can use the Force to pull the mother box through the air to herself. But let me gush about this fight sequence. It's incredible, it's emotional, the Amazons are tough and powerful, but they're still not enough. The ceiling of the chamber locking her warriors inside is so much more emotive in this version. I think there was a shorter version of it in the theatrical cut. This version really shows the emotional cost of leaving her people behind. Hippolyta saves herself because she has to lead. But I have to ask, why the metal bikinis? Now I know Wonder Woman's costume is made to have a certain sex appeal, and it's not entirely practical, but in the Wonder Woman movie, the Amazons wore much more practical armour. But in this scene, some of them are literally wearing metal bikinis, and that's a lot more objectifying than the previous movie. <laughs> and pretty absurd, really. Seeing the chamber collapse into the ocean looks amazing. Hippolyta gives the mother box to others and tells them to guard it with their life. What this scene does is first show us how awesome the Amazons are, and then it shows them losing. It gives us a sense of how dangerous Steppenwolf is. Hippolyta thinks that it's over for a minute, but then parademons emerge, followed by Steppenwolf. He can jump really high, not quite fly, and he's super strong. He is a god in the DC sense, much like the old gods, the Greek gods. Darkseid and his various minions are referred to in the DC universe as the new gods. It's never really explained what the Greek gods were in this movie universe. In the Marvel Universe, the Norse gods were aliens, but there's no real suggestion of that here. So were they supernatural in some way? How did they end up on Earth? It's all left a bit mysterious, which is not a bad way to go. Whatever they are, we know they're fallible and mortal. They can die. This extended battle with Steppenwolf is a treat. Very, very well made. I can't do it justice with words. I can see Snyder all over this. Many superhero movies are kind of like a Big Mac. It's delicious, but it ultimately leaves you feeling hungry afterwards. Zack Snyder's superhero movies are more like a really good steak dinner. You've got to chew it a bit to get all the goodness out, but each bite is amazing. The longer running time really suits this story. It feels like Lord of the Rings. It doesn't feel bloated or stretched, kind of like a Brandon Sanderson novel. Steppenwolf has one box. He knows there are three. He'll find the others. And the music here is fantastic. The haunting vocal in another language. Hippolyta is seen comforting and grieving over one warrior who is trapped under a horse. And this is symbolic of her care for all her people. She couldn't sit beside all of those who died, but she can sit with this one. Steppenwolf hasn't gone home to his world. He's gone to the land of men, to find the other boxes. They need to light the fire. 
Men won't remember what it means, but she will. And that's the end of part one. This is our first plot point. The characters will spend the rest of the movie reacting to what just happened. Part two, the age of heroes. This part is all about the realization that the age of heroes, which was last seen when the Amazons and Atlanteans walked the earth, needs to come again. There is more pressure than ever on Bruce and Diana to find heroes to defend the world. Steppenwolf has set up his home base in Eastern Europe, next to a nuclear reactor. It's toxic. That's good. No uninvited guests. The mother box begins to transform the environment. And then we get the very first mention of the Unity. This will be formed when boxes combine. The Unity was never really explained in the theatrical cut, but we'll get a decent explanation of it in this cut as the story goes on. Steppenwolf says... He will be pleased. He will see my worth again. And this is the first hint of Steppenwolf's motivation. He doesn't have any motivation in the theatrical version. The next person to try and recruit is Barry Allen. Alfred says to Bruce, You've been working as if there's no tomorrow, just because Lex Luthor said the bell has been rung. So that's why Bruce thinks something bad is coming. It was a single line from the very end of BVS. It's not a lot to go on. No wonder he hasn't had much success in his recruiting efforts. But Bruce says it's not about Lex, it's about a promise to Superman. Alfred points out that no attack has happened. There's been no barbarians at the gate. All of that is about to change. When Hippolyta sends the arrow to warn Diana, there's a lot more ceremony to it in this version. It doesn't really add much, if anything plot-wise, but it adds texture, and honestly, I think that's enough. But there's some difficult suspension of disbelief going on here. She fires an arrow from Themyscira, and it flies over the ocean all the way to Athens. We don't know where Themyscira is, but one would assume it's near Greece. But still, this is hard to swallow. Then we get a familiar scene with Diana working at the Louvre in Paris. What does it say about her that this is her chosen job? Restoring the past, working with art. Perhaps she's clinging to something of her old life. Or maybe she really dislikes art. The arrival of the Burning Arrow at the ruins of what I can only assume is the Acropolis is on the news. Diana sees it and immediately knows. Diana goes down underground to research. The Arrow opens a secret chamber. This is cool and kind of Indiana Jones-ish. This is where she learns about Steppenwolf and Darkseid and the ancient battle that took place on Earth thousands of years ago. We don't learn the story here, but the music and the look on her face as she sees Darkseid tells us a lot. We'll find out later what she learns. We meet Silas Stone. He works at the Kryptonian Scout Ship, aka the Fortress of Solitude, which has been in Metropolis ever since Zod crashed it. Zack has told us the ship was actually Supergirl's, so she brought it to Earth thousands of years ago. That means either she's not Superman's cousin, or there was time travel involved. I doubt it's time travel. We think that the Supergirl in the upcoming Flash movie is probably not Kara Zor-El, given her appearance. But who knows if that was Zack's original concept for the DCEU Supergirl. Star Labs are using the ship for all sorts of experiments. A parademon breaks in, looking for the box, but it's not there anymore. It's Asylus' home. 
it seems they can smell or otherwise sense its presence. Police investigators are suspicious that the mother box is missing. It's listed as an asset belonging to Star Labs. Silas took the box and used it to save his son. I guess that wasn't exactly above board. A colleague has to help him hide the fact that he took it. Star Labs got the box from the Department of Defence archive. Remember, it was originally dug up by Wonder Woman's mates in the British Secret Service. We get to see Superman's ship and we hear the Man of Steel theme. I love that music. Somebody did a sketch of a parademon they saw. This sketch will become important later, but we'll come to that. Because right now, we have more important things to talk about. We meet Victor. Silas has gone home to tell his son that the box isn't safe at home anymore. A monster came to take it. Victor says Silas knows a lot about monsters, especially how to make them. Now in the theatrical cut, when talking about monsters, Victor says to his father, what makes you think I was talking about me? Now this was a decent moment. It showed how horrified he was at what his father had done to him. That line wasn't in the Snyder Cut. Instead, in this version, we focus on Victor's feelings that he is a monster now. He's horrified by what he's turned into to save his life. His arc in this story is all about learning to accept what he's become and coming to terms with his relationship with his father. A ship is sinking out at sea, a fishing boat. Predictably, Aquaman saves the guy. After that, he returns to his Icelandic village. The fisherman is not a local, but this is where he brings him. Arthur goes in for a whiskey, Ask them to tell the fisherman to respect the storm next time. The next scene is very interesting. This is where Arthur rips his shirt off while drinking whiskey from the bottle. In the theatrical cut, this scene was accompanied by hard rock music. That music, combined with these visuals, told a story. It told us that Arthur Curry is a badass. I hope I don't lose my clean rating for saying that word. But try as I might, I can't think of another one that really portrays the same sense. This is what I really mean when I often talk about people being tough. I'm just trying to avoid using that word. We actually spell that word differently in Australia. A-R-S-E, as opposed to the American A-S-S. Our version is considered a much stronger word. The American version seems to be a bit of light slang, but our version is considered a stronger swear word. Anyway, the music says that Arthur is cool because he drinks whiskey. He's a hard-drinking tough guy, and you don't want to mess with him. But in the Snyder Cut, we get a different musical choice. It's a melancholy contemporary song, and it changes everything. This music, over the exact same visuals, tells us a very different story. It tells us that Arthur is alone and depressed. He doesn't know who he is or where he belongs, so he drowns his doubts in drink. It portrays alcohol in a more honest light, I think. Arthur doesn't drink because it's cool, he drinks because he's lost. And I find the contrast between these two versions of the scene absolutely fascinating. Arthur goes deep underwater. He's never been to Atlantis. We know this from the Aquaman movie, but this works in canon here because he's just visiting a little outpost, not the main city. He's still asking the question, who am I? Falco finds him, and it's so cool to see Falco in Justice League. Did Arthur come seeking Falco? 
Arthur rejects his role as king, but he keeps coming back here. He sees his people as brutal and suspicious. Falco points out the surface is no different, but nobody has called Arthur the king of the surface. Now we need to talk about the infamous air bubbles. In Justice League, whenever Atlanteans want to talk to one another underwater, they form a little bubble of air, so they can speak verbally. Some people didn't like this, and James Wan didn't use that concept in the Aquaman movie. He just had the characters talking underwater as if they were above ground. But I found that really silly and really hard to take. Personally, I don't mind these air bubbles. It's practical. Remember, the Atlanteans weren't originally native to the ocean. They lived above the ground. Now, back when I did the podcast about Aquaman, I suggested that the Atlanteans really should communicate telepathically underwater. And interestingly, we'll see that shortly. So it seems that Zack Snyder and I were kind of on the same page here. Falco tells him that the mother box has awoken. Now is the time that Atlantis needs its king. This sets up a lot of stuff about Arthur's character and his relationship with his people that will be explored in the Aquaman movie. This character development is handled so much better than the previous version. We get our first mention of Dessard. Steppenwolf calls him and talks over this weird burning hologram thing. Zack Snyder doesn't seem to like to use the Star Wars style translucent hologram that all sci-fi seems to use these days, including modern Star Trek. Instead, he seems to give each species a unique form of display technology. Kryptonians use a kind of projection technology based around these little metal dots. The images are essentially real physical objects made up of these little metal pins. Darkseid's race use this projection technology where everything looks like it's made of fire. It's possibly not very practical, but very fitting for the people of Apocalypse. It's probably supposed to look intimidating. So everyone was very excited to see Dessard in this movie. Unlike Darkseid, his inclusion hadn't been largely signposted. It kind of made me wish that I was more familiar with the DC New Gods characters before seeing this movie just so I could fully appreciate the significance of seeing this guy. To me, it was just, okay, so Steppenwolf is talking to some bloke. Clearly, I haven't read enough comic books. Steppenwolf points out that the world is divided and easy to defeat. We will unite them in common cause, dedication to Darkseid. And that's interesting. Many alien invasion stories point out the divided nature of Earth as a weakness, and most show that we need to unite to defeat our common enemy. Here, the invader is talking about uniting the people, but for his cause, in dedication to the enemy. Unlike Zod, Steppenwolf doesn't want to kill us all. He wants to subjugate us, although his method of subjugation tends to be turning us into parademons. So that's essentially death anyway. He says the other two boxes still sleep, but the parademons have felt their presence. And this is interesting, because we did see them react to Superman's scream. I guess they've gone dormant again after that. We get some more exploration of Steppenwolf's motivation. He wants to come home and serve Darkseid, but he can't because he betrayed Darkseid. We don't really get much more information than that, but I'd love to dig deeper and find out what exactly his betrayal was. The last Steppenwolf scene was all action, this is the first time we really get to see some acting from him, some nice close-ups of his face, seeing his expressions. 
The CGI is fantastic and beautiful, and is an equal contributor, along with the actor, to this performance. Dessard says that Steppenwolf still owes 50,000 worlds. That's a lot of worlds. Again, I want to know more about what he did to earn such a debt. He's confident that he can conquer this world. There are no protectors, no lanterns, no Kryptonian. I don't know a great deal about the Green Lantern Corps, but I imagine they're following some kind of Star Trek-esque prime directive. Not getting overly involved in our world because we're not yet an interstellar power. But given we've recently made First Contact, Earth is likely on their radar, and we'll talk about this right at the end in the epilogue. Diana and Bruce meet up for the first time in this movie. Bruce mentions his troop carrier. His engineers can't seem to make it fly. He needs it to get cargo delivered long range. And that makes sense. For him, it's not just about Gotham anymore. Bruce is taking his first steps from local vigilante to international hero. See, even the plane has more of a character arc in this version of the film. And I'm not saying that inanimate objects should have arcs in all stories, but its inclusion in this cut makes more sense. Diana came to share what she's learning with Bruce. The enemies you are so worried about, they're already here. She knows the ancient legends that took place before she was born from reading about them in the ancient ruins. She describes Darkseid and his minions as invaders from another universe, not another planet. I'll dig deeper into this later when the movie talks about the multiverse concept. But for now, I'll just say that I would have been fine with them just being aliens from another planet. I see no need for them to be from a whole other universe. Anyway, they're an ancient enemy. They've been here before. And this is where we get the flashback scene. And big surprise, in this cut, it's Darkseid, not Steppenwolf, who invades ancient Earth in the flashback. Darkseid, a name feared in every universe. Again with the universe stuff. I really liked this change. I can see why Joss Whedon simplified this in his attempt to bring this down to a much shorter movie, but having Darkseid be the one in the flashback adds a lot more epic scope. Earth had defenders, an alliance of old gods, Amazons, men and Atlanteans, and some guardians from the stars. We see a little more of the lanterns in this version, which is cool. Once again, this scene is so much more powerful. I love how the new gods are portrayed as more alien in the movie. In the comics, they just look human. Technically, at this moment, Darkseid has another name, Uxas, but they chose not to enter into that confusion. Too much history to go into. He probably does go by Uxas here, but Diana just doesn't know that name. Now, diehard fans were able to tell just from the trailer that this was Uxas. I'm not sure how. According to my research, after he seized the throne from his older brother, Uxas's skin became like stone, and he changed his name to Darkseid. I don't really notice a lot of difference in his appearance between this flashback and his later scene. I mean, in both times, his skin has a certain rockiness to it. Anyway, Darkseid found a mystery on Earth. The mother boxes didn't come from Earth. Darkseid had them brought here. They were science so advanced that they looked like sorcery. The boxes combine to form the unity and cleanse a world with fire, transforming it into the bearer's world, the hellish landscape of apocalypse. 
the people are converted into parademons. So the Mother Boxes and the Unity were not the mystery found on Earth. They were Darkseid's tools. The mystery itself is not revealed here yet. That'll come later. These invaders came in spaceships, and we are fighting them with swords, axes, and arrows. The Lanterns are the only ones using sci-fi tech. They are interstellar travellers, aliens after all. I love how Zeus and Ares make an appearance in this movie. Ares was the villain in Wonder Woman, but here he's a hero. They kind of need the God of War because this is a war, an invasion. Even Darkseid is fighting with a mace. Am I the only one who finds this all a bit odd? But Ares uses magic lightning stuff. He defeats Darkseid, but he doesn't kill him. Zeus breaks apart the Mother Boxes so they can be hidden separately. The Boxes were left behind in Darkseid's retreat. They fell asleep, but they want to be used. A bit like the One Ring? The men in this battle were apparently ancient Vikings. Each protector hid their box according to their culture. I wonder, was this before Atlantis went underwater? It seems like it might be after. It was the box of men that was discovered in the 20th century. It was just buried in the ground and forgotten. Other races kept theirs hidden using advanced technology. It was said that the Age of Heroes would never come again, but it has to if we're going to stop Steppenwolf. It's time to find the other metahumans and bring them together. Q Part 3 Beloved Mother, Beloved Son Speaking of the other metahumans, it's time to meet Barry Allen, our next recruit. And this is a totally new scene. It's a very nice introduction to the character. He bumps into Iris by accident, and they both share a little moment. He takes notice of her as you'd expect, but she seems to be even more attracted to him than he is to her. I found this very refreshing. No angst where one likes the other, but it's not reciprocated at first. Just two people who have a spark. We learn quickly that Barry is intelligent, but awkward. No social skills. He is the character that we nerds are going to most identify with. And with the absence of a truly nerdy Clark Kent in the DCEU, it's nice to have this character. He's going for a job in a pet store. The upcoming vehicle accident is a confluence of Iris's car not starting and the truck driver being distracted by his dropped sandwich. I really like this version of Iris, and I like the actor in the role. There's a sweet innocence to her. Last I heard, the upcoming Flash movie is going to keep the same casting, which I think is cool. As she drives away, she is also distracted. She's still checking out Barry. I love the way he pushes through the glass. It's an awesome visual effect. And I love the way he skids on the asphalt, breaking it up. The slow motion in this scene is incredible and so effective. There's a real sweetness to this scene. Barry is here to save her life, but he's so fast and the world around him is so slow that he can take his time. He takes a moment just to admire this girl, to really take in how pretty she is. But there's been a little bit of controversy about this scene. Some people have found it inappropriate that Barry reaches out and touches her hair without her knowledge or permission. Maybe they're right, maybe they're wrong, I'm not sure. If he'd done more than touch her hair, something more overtly sexual, then it would have been clearly wrong. Given the way Iris was unapologetically checking him out, 
displaying very clear attraction to him, there's probably a good chance that she would be okay with him touching her hair like this. This thing feels like a bit of a minefield, so I don't want to give any hard opinion on it. But it is important to think about these things. We should always be respectful of other people, and remember that they are people with feelings. But I will say that this feels like a bit of a non-issue when compared to what Wonder Woman and Steve Trevor did to Steve's host body in Wonder Woman 1984. What they did was blatantly immoral, in my opinion. But as for this scene, all I can say is that it came across as sweet rather than creepy to me. Barry grabs a hot dog. The audience is left thinking, what on earth is he going to do with that? He has time to think all these things through. Most of this scene is not actually comedic. It's just that last moment. The hot dog as a meat snack for the dog is pretty funny, but probably gets him the job. The Barry humour in this film is so much better than the way Joss Whedon's cut used him for comic relief. If you've listened to my podcast on that version of Justice League, you'll know how much I disliked the use of the character in that movie. In this movie, Flash is a character, not just a mouthpiece for unfunny jokes. Steppenwolf's spider droid is super cool. It reads the location of Atlantis from a man's mind. Now Steppenwolf knows where to find that second box. Lois is still working her way through her own grief. She hasn't been to work since Clark's death. She still has the cape. And we hear a hint of the Man of Steel music. And I still love it. And I'm still saying it. Diana isn't sure she can trust Arthur. He said no to Bruce. The Amazons fought a war against them in the past. They decide Bruce will work on Barry and Diana will work on Victor. And this is where we start to get Cyborg's backstory. I don't think he's left his house since his father turned his dying corpse into a cyborg. Is American football usually played at night? We play cricket at night, but not football. I don't think. But then I'm not really into sport, so what would I know? And they're playing in the snow. This may not make much sense, but it looks awesome. He hacked into the school computer system to change his friend's grade. He's already into technology. This girl is having a hard time in her life, so her grades have suffered. Victor helped her because he has a good heart. His mother asks, what did the teacher do to help her? And that's a good question. Now this doesn't justify what Victor did, it was still cheating, but it shows what kind of a person he is, a good person with a good heart. The absent chair in the grandstand tells us a lot about Victor's family life. Silas didn't come to the football game, and so Victor's great triumph feels meaningless. His mother tries to defend him, but she's just as busy as he is, but she makes the time. Silas has difficulty showing it, but he's proud of his son. Showing stuff like that is a common problem for us men. But Victor's mother is right. No matter how busy you are, you've got to make time for your kids. There may be times when work has to take precedence temporarily, but ultimately, family comes first. And that's when the car accident happens, because she is distracted comforting him. There seems to be a real message about being distracted behind the wheel in this movie. The mother dies, and Victor will die shortly. It's too late for Silas to help his wife, but maybe he can save his son using the mysterious alien technology he's been studying. Remember, he got the human mother box from the Department of Defense. 
And then we cut back to present day. Silas has come home to talk to his son. Victor, you're not stuck here. You can still have a life. Your mother would have wanted you to live it. And Victor hits him where it really hurts. If you had been there, mum would still be alive. And this is the sad truth. How do you live with something like that? Silas says that Victor doesn't have to give him a second chance, but he should give himself one. If you can't stand looking at me, try listening. And he gives him the tape. Silas is trying. That shows that although he's not a great father, he wants to be better, and I respect that. I always respect the desire to be better in fictional characters. Victor hasn't yet discovered the full extent of his abilities. He has so much more than just strength. He discovers the jets. He can fly. But more than that, he can break encryption, control technology. Our whole lives are dominated by digital technology. That makes Cyborg our king, the most powerful being in a digital world. The data of the world can rest in his hands. And this is an awesome responsibility. He could launch the world's nuclear arsenal with a thought. He could control financial systems. This is why Cyborg was moved from the Teen Titans to the Justice League in the comics. I'm starting to understand now. The theatrical cut didn't bring out any of this. He was just a guy in a metal suit who could fly. The challenge won't be doing it. It will be not doing it. The burden of his power. This responsibility will define who he chooses to be. And this is when he realises that he can still be that boy helping his friend. He finds a woman struggling to raise her son with little money. He sees her entire life through social media posts, cameras in supermarkets. And he decides to help her. He sees her being evicted from her home, locked out, on the street, crying. And he is moved with compassion. He decides to help her. He takes money and transfers it into her account. Now this is technically stealing, just like hacking his friend's grades was cheating. What he's doing is not right, in one sense, but it is compassionate. It's a very emotional scene at the ATM when he gives her the money and he watches her cry with the realisation that her life has changed and she now has hope. I saw a post from the actress who played this woman on Twitter. Imagine filming all these scenes only to discover that your entire character has been cut out of the movie. I know this happens a lot, but it's got to be crushingly disappointing. She posted on Twitter asking if anybody knew if her part had been restored in the Snyder Cut. Perhaps she didn't want to watch it just to be disappointed a second time. Her tweet was met with an absolute flood of fans replying, saying that not only were her scenes restored in the Snyder Cut, but the scenes moved people to tears. Her scene was at the very emotional heart of this movie. I love this story. In a way, the actress experienced that same renewal of hope as her character. And that's a beautiful thing. But as soon as Silas wants to talk as a father, Victor smashes the tape player. The Parademons have sniffed out Victor. They've arrived at his house for the box. Everything about this is so much better. As with Flash, Cyborg is actually a character in this cut. He wasn't in the theatrical cut. A lot of the Barry stuff with his father was in the Joss version. 
He's been working dead-end jobs, raising money for a criminal justice degree, to try to get his father out of prison. This version may be longer, and it connects to a more active character arc. The father doesn't want Barry to waste his life on the false hope of getting him out of prison. Go and follow your dreams, live your life. You can't help me, I'm a drag on your life. These are hard things to hear. The problem in the Whedon cut was that they had the beginning of the arc, and they had the end, but nothing in the middle. You've got to show the reason a character changes. They have to go through something that impacts them. Somehow, this version of the prison scene plays better, more dramatic. This brings us to the scene where Barry meets Bruce. Now, this scene is mostly the same as the Whedon cut, but a bit different. Joss clearly cut the scene to insert more comedy. I actually don't mind Barry rambling about brunch, because it fed into the character aspect of his awkwardness. And that worked well, even in the Whedon version. Bruce knows Barry has abilities, but he doesn't know what. Flash's suit was supposed to be homemade, but where did he get all the space-age technology to make it? The humour that remains in this scene is Snyder humour, and it works for me. I never really had a problem with this scene, but this version is just that little bit better. I love how Barry jumps straight in, because he needs friends. Again, playing into the socially awkward aspect of his character. I, I don't mind the snack hole joke. And Bruce's line about his superpower being rich, I liked that. And this is where Bruce drives past the billboard, saying, You are not alone. This is an advertisement for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. This is an especially meaningful addition, given that the reason Zack ultimately left the project initially was because of the tragic suicide of his daughter, Autumn. This moment stood out to me very clearly. It's especially fitting because the fans who worked tirelessly to bring the Snyder Cut into reality took up the cause, not just of artistic integrity and rewarding those who poured their hearts and souls into this movie, but they very much took up the cause of suicide prevention, raising a whole lot of money, not only for advertising the movie, but for charity. In a way, this entire movie, both its story in front of and behind the camera, is a love letter to Zack's daughter, and those like her. It was also fitting, given the movie came out in 2020, when people all around the world were facing a lot of very hard things. There's a new scene between Diana and Alfred. I love his discomfort with the way she makes the tea. He may not be a traditional butler, but he's still British. Alfred is making a special gauntlet for Bruce out of Kryptonian technology. He'll need that when fighting aliens and parademons. This was never explained in the Whedon version. It's important. It adds to the believability. Batman has to transition from crime fighter to world saver. That's a big change, and this movie shows that change a lot more. Victor hacks into Bruce's bat computer, which is never called that on screen, thankfully, to invite Diana to a meeting. Victor turning off the streetlights one by one is ominous. And this is where we first see him fly. He wants to know why she's looking for him. We've established how he knows so much. And we get our second F-bomb, the first having been uttered by the terrorists back near the beginning of the movie. I'm not sure this one fits as well as the first. Victor does care about the world. At least, he cares about individuals. He just proved that. So why is he saying F the world? Diana calls what he has a gift. 
What about this looks like a gift to you, he asks. This is a central question to Victor's character arc. This is his mirror moment. His story is all about coming to terms with what he's become. Is it a blessing or a curse? Diana shared how she lost Steve. She shut herself off from the world for a long time. She had to learn to open up, but she's still working on it. And she thinks he's still working on it too. Although he flies away, I think she got through to him with that. Victor buries the box in his own empty grave to keep the parademons from finding it. See, despite his F the world, he does care somewhat. What are Starlabs testing with the laser? Something from the parademon? This material is the hottest thing on Earth. This is setting up for a powerful moment later. The assistant thinks the drawing of the parademon looks like Batman. But he saw the actual parademon. He knows it's different. Silas comes home to the broken tape player. That would wound a father's heart. He can't get through to his son. A parademon is in the house. It takes Silas. And now we cut to Gotham Police Station. Commissioner Gordon is given the drawing of the parademon, and it does look like Batman. If you didn't know parademons existed, Batman is probably the first thing that will come to mind. I understand other cops thinking this, but Gordon knows him better. And I only just recently learned something that blew my mind. I can't believe that this is the same actor that played J. Jonah Jameson in the Spider-Man movies. I mean, now that I know, I can see it. But it just shows his versatility as an actor. The Spider-Man role is such an over-the-top ridiculous character, the opposite of everything that Gordon is. The Parademons are using Silas as bait to draw out the box. Bruce and Barry land in Gotham, met by Diana. Again, I don't mind Barry's awkwardness in this scene. The Hi Barry, I'm Diana worked okay for me. His response to the bat signal, slightly less so. Meanwhile, Steppenwolf comes to Atlantis. He knows where to find this box. Mira is using telepathic clicks to communicate, but she makes an air bubble to talk with a guard. Amber Heard, who plays Mira, is a figure surrounded by controversy. I'm not going to comment on her morality, because honestly, I don't know what went on between her and her husband, Johnny Depp. But I will say that as an actor, she is great in this role. I like her British accent. I couldn't remember what accent she used in the theatrical cut, but it seemed she had an American accent, both in that movie and in Aquaman. I wonder why they changed it. There's something more regal about a British accent here. So here's a question. Can the other Atlanteans make the water bubbles, or just Mira? She has the ability to manipulate water. Is that how she makes the bubbles? And by that logic, is she the only one who can do it? Pretty sure there was a bubble with Aquaman and Falco earlier, and Mira wasn't present, so I guess others have the ability. Her ability to manipulate liquid, even blood and fluid, in Steppenwolf's body makes her really powerful. I'd say more powerful than Arthur himself. Maybe she should be the one to join the Justice League. Arthur meets Mira for the first time. He comes in and helps her fight Steppenwolf, saves her life. Why did she not do the blood thing a second time? Maybe she needs to use her hands. We get a good sense of Steppenwolf's strength while he's fighting Arthur. We never really get to understand why he has the abilities he does. They couldn't stop him getting the box. Now he has two. Falco told Mira that Arthur would come. 
She knows him by reputation. And she knows his mum. He didn't. He thinks that she abandoned him. She explains that his mother left to save his life. You can't imagine how it hurt her, how it cost her. Going to the surface would have been his mother's responsibility. Now it's Arthur's. One wonders why Mira doesn't go with him. He could use her in the fight. All the noble-born Atlanteans can survive on the surface. It makes very little sense for them to only send one. And they're not even sending Arthur. Mira is the only one who knows he was even here. The Atlanteans' apathy regarding this invader to the planet is puzzling. Do they really think this reshaping of the planet won't affect the oceans? With two boxes now, the transformation of the landscape continues. Steppenwolf can now build up his force field surrounding his base. He talks again to Dassard. He knows he is close to the third box. He has prisoners who have been close to it. Part 4. Change Machine Bruce responds to Gordon's bat signal. He shows up with Diana and the Flash. Gordon is surprised to see him working with other people. Victor shows up. His father has been taken. Now it's personal. Now he's in. Gordon has plotted the Parademon sightings, and this helps them figure out where the prisoners are. I was very surprised to see the oh, they all just vanished gag in this version of the movie. That joke totally did not work for me. As I said in my review of the last version, it makes sense for Batman to sneak away silently, but not the others. I like the hard rock music that plays as they enter the underwater facility at Strikers Island. So they're here to fight parademons. Diana is in her element. Batman can handle it. But this is very new for Flash and Cyborg. Neither of them have been in combat before. So there was a scene in the Weeding Cut where Flash talks about this, how he's never been in combat before. He just kind of pushed people and ran really fast. Now that scene is not in this version. I actually really did like that scene. That was the one bit of characterization they gave Flash in the Whedon cut. And it made sense. I mean, the Flash is not a warrior. He's not a fighter. He's never done anything like this. He's an ordinary guy who happens to have super speed. And suddenly he's been thrust into this battle with this otherworldly being. I liked that the Whedon cut actually acknowledged that. But here, Barry has a nice, honest moment when he first sees Steppenwolf, this big alien creature, and he says, I'm really missing Superman right now. This again is important because it just reminds us that Superman is not around. A bunch of scientists from Star Labs have the scent of the mother box on them. Silas has the strongest scent of all. Despite the problems between them, Victor is very much wanting to save his father. The music is amazing in this scene. We get that mournful cry again, which is becoming a prelude to Wonder Woman's theme, which plays as soon as she starts fighting. Steppenwolf recognises her as an Amazon. It's logical to use the Flash to rescue the hostages, while Batman and Wonder Woman do the bulk of the alien fighting. Barry's skill is moving fast. He's the perfect one to get them out of here. Batman calls for the Nightcrawler when he realises what they're really facing. This is his power. He has the resources and the ability to create this amazing hardware. I talked a bit earlier about how it feels kind of weird for all these aliens and powerful beings to be fighting using ancient melee weapons in a modern setting. 
Wonder Woman somehow feels like an exception to that. It may be weird for an interstellar invader to come wielding an axe, but it seems more fitting for an ancient Amazon warrior, cut off from modern society for most of her life, to wield a sword. Steppenwolf says that Diana has the blood of the old gods in her. Whoever they were, whatever they were, he can sense them. And it makes sense, since Zeus himself created her. There's a nice moment between Victor and Silas. Victor makes sure his father is okay, demonstrating true concern for him before returning to the fight. No matter what trouble exists between them, his father is all he has left. I like the moment when Victor gets into the Nightcrawler and tells Alfred he'll take over. Alfred, of course, has no idea who he is, so he just says, Do I know you? Victor knows everything about Batman because he has access to the world's digital resources. Having failed to obtain the box, Steppenwolf beams back to his base in Eastern Europe, causing the tunnel to crack and Gotham Harbour to come spilling into the underground facility. Fortunately, Arthur arrived just in time to make use of his mastery over water. So he kind of has similar power to Mira. He can manipulate water as well, maybe not as well as her. I'm not sure exactly how that works. Back at the base, the two mother boxes are talking to Steppenwolf. He touches one and experiences a vision. It is here, on this world. He's discovered something long forgotten, something incredible, something that will change his life and his standing with Darkseid. He calls to Sarge to share his news. Before Darkseid claimed the throne, he searched the universe for the anti-life equation. He found it on a primitive planet, the world that fought back. It was Earth. The anti-life equation is carved into the fabric of this world. The ultimate weapon, the key to controlling all matter, all will. And now, finally, he has Darkseid's attention. He will talk to Steppenwolf directly. This is where we get to see Steppenwolf out of his armour. As it folds back, we see just how alien Steppenwolf is. He looks absolutely awesome. Darkseid has turned 100,000 worlds to dust, looking for this world again. Did he know anti-life was on Earth? Did he forget? This is the big question that people ask. The Justice League arrives at Bruce's facility. This is not the Batcave, this is the warehouse he's been building the cargo plane. Victor senses it has a software problem. He could fix it with time. Diana has never seen a being as powerful as Steppenwolf. Only maybe one Superman. Even if they could find his base, they may not be powerful enough to take him out. The mother boxes are made of an unknown material. They can't destroy them with conventional means. The mother boxes are made of an unknown material. They can't destroy them with conventional means. <laughs> Again, a bit like the One Ring. Arthur is suspicious of Victor. Is he working with the enemy? To prove he's a good guy, he shares his story. The box was found by the Nazis after World War II, which doesn't quite fit with Wonder Woman. The British were looking for it after World War I. Anyway, the Americans got their hands on it. It didn't wake up until Superman's ship was activated. It was harder than anything ever encountered, but they developed a beam that could possibly cut it. Silas used the box to transform Victor. Everything about his cyborg form is alien. Silas unleashed an alien technology he couldn't understand. That makes cyborg dangerous, a risk. 
we learn that they're not super psycho murder machines. They're change machines. They change, alter, and reinstate matter according to the will of their user. So that's kind of how this whole Unity thing works. Now, anyone with a match can turn a house into ash. But a mother box can turn ash back into a house. And this gives them the idea to use the box to bring back Superman. Restore him to life. I like how the Man of Steel theme swells while Victor projects a hologram of Superman in a heroic pose. It's very cool. And I think this whole exploration of how and why they're going to bring Superman back to life works a lot better than it did. And this is where we get that wonderful scene between Martha and Lois. Martha went to the Daily Planet to get Clark's things. She tells Lois that she's lost the farm. She was behind on the payments. Not surprised, given how the house was trashed by Zod's people. But Perry told her that Lois hasn't been into work since Clark died. We're not sure exactly how much time has elapsed, but this shows us that Lois is very much still grieving, and probably for longer than is generally expected for people who have lost a loved one. Martha observes that the whole world is grieving Superman. They're grieving a symbol, but they didn't know Clark. Lois is the only other person who knows how Martha is feeling. This scene explores a similar theme to the newsroom scene in the Weaving Cut, but it is infinitely better. That scene fell really flat for me. This one is deep with emotion, real emotion. Lois offers to do anything she can to help Martha. Martha says there is one thing that she can do, come back to the land of the living. A powerful invitation. And then this is where Martha goes outside and we see her transform into Martian Manhunter and then into General Swanick. So we know that General Swanick was Martian Manhunter. Now, this is really interesting. People have debated a lot about whether this little reveal at the end takes away the power of that incredible scene just before it, because it wasn't really Martha. Now, I've heard it argued that Martian Manhunter would have known what Martha would have said, and so he just said what she would have said anyway. But to me, that's not enough. First of all, it shows that Martha didn't actually come to see Lois. Like, there has been no connection between them. And that's really sad, and I kind of wish there was. For me, the scene plays so much more powerfully if it really is Martha. So, personally, although it's kind of cool to see Martian Manhunter, I would have preferred if this was really Martha. Meanwhile, the League are discussing the pros and cons of trying to bring back Superman. In this version, they have a greater reason to want to restore Superman, because Stefan Wolf is so much more threatening in this version. Bruce has a logical reason to think that Superman has the power to stop Stefan Wolf. The boxes were first activated when Superman first appeared, but they didn't call out to their creators until after he died. The boxers were afraid of him. And this answers the whole question that people have asked, well, why didn't Steppenwolf just invade before Superman was there, given that the boxers are saying, you know, Superman's dead, they could have just gone before that. Now, they didn't even know. And this brings us to the end of the first disc of the Blu-ray. And I'm going to call the podcast here, because I've been talking for a very long time. Next time, we will talk about the second half of Zack Snyder's Justice League.
and I'm not going to make you wait two weeks, so we'll do this next week. So I hope you look forward to that. I hope you've enjoyed this uh, deep discussion of the Snyder Cut so far. I really love digging into this, and I'm looking forward to digging into the second half of it with you next time. Live long and prosper. Have a great week. Catch you then.